we look specifically at how to apply these, these two doctrines, forgiveness and repentance, and specifically how you apply them to others and, and put them into to practice. I mean, the, the two common questions that most people have when we're dealing with forgiveness ourselves is not, do I have to forgive? You, you know that as a Christian. You know that instinctively as a, as a Christian. But the question you have is, what does that look like practically? I know as a Christian I'm to forgive, but, but how? And that's what the letter to Philemon was, was written to, to assist us with. And it doesn't answer all of the questions, but it gives us a, a good trajectory. Um, the second question is, uh, how do I know if the person seeking forgiveness is sincere or truly repentant? And we looked at that last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul gives us an x-ray of a a heart that has godly sorrow operating in it, leading to repentance. And and, uh, as Dr. Mark Hager has said many times, as believers, we are to live with twin mindsets. We're we're to be ready to repent and willing to forgive. That's a life that's pleasing to the the Lord. I grasp what God has done for me in the gospel, so I want to live void of offense in, in my conscience between God and, and man. I have a clear conscience with, with both. There's, there's nothing between me and the Lord, so I am, and I, I'm ready to repent before Him or, or others, and I'm, I'm, I'm also willing to forgive. I don't want anything between me or, or anyone else on, else on the earth. Of course, there, there are times when when the people that wrong us don't repent, or, the, or they can't, they, they can't be found, uh, maybe, they're, maybe they're dead, or maybe they're still in their sin, they just, they just won't repent, and in those cases, you turn those individuals over to the Lord with a, with a forgiving heart, and you trust Him to, to, to do right. That's the, I'm willing to forgive, even though they, they don't come to you because they, they can't. But for those situations where another person has, has wronged us and, and you're able to show them their faults and go through that process, like in Matthew 18, we forgive as Christ has forgiven us. And 2 Corinthians 7 provides for us that observable evidence of genuine repentance. It's not just mouthing the words, but there are things that go on in the heart by the, by the grace of God. And in Matthew 18, we saw those two realities come, come together. We're, We're given steps to reconcile, and the Lord shows us how serious God considers forgiveness. And last week, we introduced the the, the message with with how Jesus illustrates that in the parable of the unforgiving servant. You remember a slave owes a king a massive debt. He can't repay it, and so the king commands the man to to repay the debt, and and he's unable to do that, so his family has to be sold and recover whatever debt he can. And the man realizes this. He begs for mercy. And the master then responds with, with being moved with compassion. He releases him and he forgives the debt. And it's a powerful picture of what God does for sinners. Unfortunately, in that same parable, the forgiven slave turns right around and won't forgive his own servant a much smaller debt and when the king hears about it, he's, he's livid. He calls him a wicked servant, and he turns him over to be beaten. And Jesus ends the parable by saying, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. And it tells us the Lord will deal very harshly with his own children 
who will not forgive. Jesus makes the same point in many other places when the disciples ask him to teach us to pray. We, we pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive our, those who trespass against us or our debtors. And when Jesus teaches them that in Matthew 6, he ends it this way. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. We get that. But what if you're sitting here this morning and you're not Philemon, but you're Onesimus? What if you're sitting here this morning or listening and you're the one who needs forgiven? We, we've looked at this from the, from the angle of the, of the forgiver, but, but how do these truths about forgiveness and repentance apply to the person who's on the other side of the coin? Philemon is, a, is an example of a believer who is called by, by Paul, by God through Paul, to forgive his runaway slave who's wronged him. But, and we learned how God asks us to, to do the same thing. But, but if, what if you're the one who did wrong? How does forgiveness apply to you? What if you have a record? And it's black. You're not the, like the unforgiving servant. You're like the repentant publican who said, God, be merciful to a sinner. And now you've come to Christ and you've, you begin to realize all that you've done. And, and what if you're saying, I, I know I did it. I, I don't need to be convinced, um, but I can't undo it. What, what now? What, what do I do? Does the Bible have any hope or direction for me, and indeed it, it does. And it's found in a very unlikely place, I think. It's, it's actually tucked away in Colossians chapter 4 in these descriptions that Paul makes about his companions that are with him. So if you're not there, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 9. And you can't change the past, but if you look to Christ in repentance like, like we learned last week, then the Bible says you've been forgiven. And now you're to live different from this day forward. Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. This lesson on forgiveness is embedded in the farewell instructions from Paul. And Paul doesn't just communicate about this man, Onesimus, to, uh, to Philemon, in his letter to Philemon, but, but Paul also mentions him right here in, in these closing words in Colossians chapter 4. And, and you can connect Philemon and the, and the letter to the Colossians because it's the, the same author going to the same location, the same participants. The, the church is meeting in Philemon's house, and they're sent at the exact same time. So you can look at Philemon, and you can look at Colossians, and this is not like saying, well, this is an epistle from Paul over here to the Corinthians, and here's another one over here to, to the Romans, and they're separated by, by hundreds of miles and completely different congregations. These are the same people. And Paul tells Philemon in... Philemon 1.15, For perhaps Onesimus was for this reason separated from you for a while that, that you would have him back forever. And he says Paul's, uh, God's providence was at work in sin, not causing it, but using it. 
And that would make Onesimus or did make Onesimus useful to God and even Philemon. And right here in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, we, we, we learn about that usefulness. And you find how God views Philemon's slave now. Look, if you would, at verse 9 of Colossians chapter 4. He says, And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they, that's Tychicus and Onesimus, will inform you about the whole situation here, where where Paul's at, where he's in prison. Now, those are some striking words about Onesimus because you've already read Philemon and you know what he's done. But here, with that same letter to Philemon, there's a letter to the church as a whole. And to the church as a whole, Paul says that Onesimus is a faithful and beloved brother. I mean, if you would read this, you would have no idea that Paul was talking about a former thief and a runaway slave, would you? I mean, or if you've read Philemon first, you wonder, well, maybe this is a different Onesimus. Maybe, you know, it's like uh, Daryl and my other brother Daryl. There's two of them here. And you say, well, maybe this was after a long, long period of time, um, after he went back and made it right with Philemon and did some kind of penance, maybe he worked off his debt. He, He stayed a while in a debtor's prison, but that's not the case either. In fact, these words about Onesimus were written before he even left to take the letter to Philemon, before he ever fulfilled or followed through with what Paul called Onesimus to do, and before Philemon ever forgave him. In fact, this letter to the Colossian church was sent with the personal one to Philemon. So here's a man with a very sinful past... And now having come to Christ with with evident repentance, and here's the the significance of verse 9. He is described the way he is, not the way he was. And that's some gospel hope for all of us this morning. In fact, in this three-part description of Onesimus, the way Paul describes Onesimus, I think you, you will see three descriptions that show how a forgiven person is viewed by the Lord. Three descriptions of how a forgiven person is viewed by the Lord. Number one, their, their past does not negate their future. That's found in the adjectives, how he describes them as a faithful and beloved brother. Their position is based on the, on the present. He's one of you. And then their profit is determined by their ongoing faithfulness. Paul actually gives him work to do. Their past does not negate their future. Their position is based on the, the present. And their profit is determined by their ongoing faithfulness. Do you have a sinful past? I do. Grievingly, I do. Until 24 years of age, I could care less, could have cared less about the gospel, cared only about my, myself, to my shame. Have you wasted part of your life like me or like Onesimus? Are you still wasting it this morning? Well, I want to tell you today, you're not beyond the reach of God and you're not beyond the hope of the gospel. 
and you're not beyond future usefulness for Christ. That may still be untold if you listen today. So the first statement that you see that is, is about Onesimus, and it makes it clear that his past did not negate his future. Look, if you would, at verse 7. We'll begin here with Tychicus. It says, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information, for I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you, know, you may know about your circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation. So, so Paul ends this letter to the Colossians that we've preached through verse by verse, including these verses here. And he ends with a, with a, a verbal photograph, if you will, of several of his companions. MacArthur said it's like a group photo taken at the end of summer camp or at the end of a short-term mission trip. And then Paul begins to describe what each of these individuals in, the, in this picture will do. And the first one he mentions is a man named Tychicus, whose name means fortunate or fortuitous. And Tychicus, along with Trophimus, are the representatives that are with Paul on his third missionary journey from Asia. And they're carrying an offering to the saints in Jerusalem. You, you probably remember the, the great famine that occurred in Jerusalem between 45 and 46 A.D., and the Jewish believers there were, were in great need, and when they came to Christ, they lost everything, and so the church was taking up an offering for them, and the, the word gets to the church in Antioch, and the elders and the disciples there take up a collection, and they send Paul and Barnabas to, to Judea. And Paul was so moved by this, this act that he continued to do the same thing in, in all of his churches, and he gathered funds for, for relief from the churches on, on each of his missionary journeys. If you want to see an example of that, you can go to 1 Corinthians 16, which is where Paul tells them to take up funds, set aside funds weekly for, for the church. So he doesn't have to do that whenever he comes. And on his third missionary journey, Paul picked up some traveling companions from out of many congregations. There's actually eight of them on that third journey, and Tychicus was one of them. He was the representative of a church in Asia, as I said, along with Trophimus. Now, catapult ahead six years to the letter to the Colossians. And Paul is imprisoned in Rome, and he's been there for almost two years, and several men are with him. And he's already faced trials before Felix and Agrippa and Festus, and he's appealed to Caesar, and he is now sending word to the churches in Colossae and Ephesus, as well as a personal letter to Philemon the patron member of the church. Tychicus is one of the followers with, with Paul, and he's a willing carrier of the letter. But along with him, verse 9 says, there's this, this other man who was to also carry this personal letter to Philemon and face what he'd done. But notice the, the way that Paul describes him here. He describes him as a faithful and beloved brother. He uses two adjectives. Attached to one relationship. He, he's faithful. It's the word for pistos. He, he's beloved. Agapetos. And then he is both of those as a brother. Uh, the NASB and ESV says our faithful brother. Making it even more personal. Paul and the church at Colossae's brother. 
Now, I don't normally do this, but I think it's important in, in this case. If you would go to a Greek lexicon and look up the, the word for faithful, I mean, we, we normally know what words mean. We, we don't have to mess around with the original language in sermons. But this one is quite interesting. Here's what it says about a, the word faithful, which is what Paul starts with, a faithful and beloved brother. He's speaking about Onesimus. Here's what it says. The word means a person who shows themselves faithful in the transaction of business, the execution of commands, or the discharge of official duties. Now that's the very opposite in every single category of of Onesimus in his past life. He was a runaway slave who was unfaithful in his master's business. He disobeyed the execution of his commands... And he didn't just charge his official duties. Instead, he used his official position to steal from the company. And the Apostle Paul even echoes this idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. This is how you should regard us, Paul says, as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of student stewards that they be found faithful. And, and Onesimus had been a steward of Philemon's household. If there's anything a servant in a house must be, it's trustworthy with the household goods, and Onesimus stole them. That's far from faithful. And the point is he did not deserve that title based on his past. In fact, in the past, he was a very unfaithful man. But with the Lord, Onesimus' future was not determined by his past because Onesimus had been transformed by Jesus Christ. I am the very last person that if you would go back and find my friends from high school or even college days and say, when Brian Farrell is 50 years old, he's going to be standing in a pulpit at Timberlake Baptist Church preaching from the book of Colossians, they would have laughed you out of the room to my shame. And you may be the very last person that the folks that know you very well would ever even think that you would be used by the Lord in some specific way. But because Onesimus had been transformed by Jesus Christ, the Bible says if any man be in Christ, he's he's a new creature, and old things are passed away. Now you know that. And you can't preach this message about the transforming power of the gospel without going through Philemon first and the doctrine of repentance. But having gone through both of those, here we are. And this is the hope that all of us have as sinners. The Bible is full of statements like that. Like in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you also know this passage very well. Paul writing to the Corinthians who had a past. Or do you not know that the unrighteousness, uh, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul lists the general types of sins that that characterize the unrighteous, the unsaved people. People that do this, these are unrighteous people. These are people who are not right with with God. And Paul says, that's what you were. 
but not now. And so in verse 11, he says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So they are no longer these things. They are ex-sinners. And notice what changed their identity. They were washed, meaning the spiritual cleansing of regeneration, like what Titus talks about. They were sanctified, the the washing of regeneration changed the way that they lived. So now there's a new pattern of living. And they were justified. They, they have a new standing before God. No longer unrighteousness, but clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And there's some heavy hitters in that list. And these people were known by these sins, meaning that it was a practice for them. It marked their life. They, they were known for it. They did it for a really long period of time. So much so that they're known as these types of people. And just as Paul says that such were some of you past tense, he also says that you were past tense washed and sanctified and justified. That was its salvation. That's how powerful the gospel is. It can change your identity, the identity that you had in sin after many years. It's what Galatians 2.20 says. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live... It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. The the past act, I have been crucified with Christ. The present reality, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And a new way of living. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. The hope is not, and I'm now pulling myself up by my bootstraps, or I've now changed the way that I live. I've, I've got a new outlook on life. The, the hope is in Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the only hope that sinners have for salvation, and the only hope that they have to live a new life. Now, if that's the way that God sees a person who's been redeemed, then who are we to identify them as otherwise, right? Paul didn't. Think of it this way. You don't call my wife by her maiden name, even though she has one. And you could probably find records that go Google. You can find anything about yourself all the way back whenever you were a child and you had, you know, you won the sixth grade honor award for whatever. You could go look up Tracy and you could find... In the archives, her name is Tracy Lanham. But when we were married, she got a new name. And her name's Tracy Farrell now. And it's disrespectful to our covenant to call her by her old name. She doesn't want to be called by her old name. And when you came to Christ, you received a new nature and a new identity. And it's equally disrespectful to God to call anyone otherwise. Because God changed Onesimus, so Paul calls him a faithful and beloved brother. Now you say, well, uh, he must have earned that after many, many years of living a different life. It's very clear that Onesimus lived a different life. He had those marks of repentance in his life from 2 Corinthians 7. But it wasn't a long time before Paul wrote this letter. I mean, even if Onesimus was saved when Paul first arrived, which is unlikely, it was less than two years 
In that short amount of time, he received the title faithful, while his whole life beforehand had proven otherwise. Now, that's how you make up for, for lost time. You have a past? I do. Is it ugly? It is. <laughs> it's filled with sin and wickedness. You actually have no idea how ugly it really was. If you knew half of your sin the way that God understands it and knows it, you would be so overwhelmed you wouldn't be able to lift up your head, much less look down your nose at anyone else. But listen to me. In Jesus Christ, all of that past is overcome in the cross. And you've got a new name written down in glory, as the song says. And now you can live a new life. You can't change the life you lived or what you were, but you're not that anymore. That's the power of Christ to change a person. And now as a new creature, you have a new position. And that's not only the case before God, but it's in relation to others. Let me look at the, show you the second statement here. <clears throat> second statement reveals his position was based on the present. His past didn't negate his future, but number two, his position was based on his present. Look if you would at verse 9 again. And with Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, notice what he says next. He's a faithful and beloved brother, and he adds this, who is one of your number or one of you? So Paul describes Onesimus to the Colossian church as someone who's one of you or one of your number. Now, what, what does he mean by that? Well, I think what he means by that is echoed in the word brother before, but he goes farther, not just brother as part of the, the kingdom of God, but he means something specific. It's a second-person genitive plural. He, he's one of yours or one of you all. It's... He was from their town for sure, but I don't think Paul is simply meaning that, that he is from Colossae. That's possible, possible because uh, he was Philemon's slave and therefore part of his house. And the, the believers who, who met there no doubt knew Onesimus. But based on the adjectives that he used to describe the, this man, it seems obvious that he's saying much more than, than that. Besides, what they did know about Onesimus of Colossae was, was not good. I mean, they would have known he was a runaway thief, so appealing to their general knowledge that he's from this hometown doesn't make any sense. Uh, Paul's not saying that at all. Paul is saying he is one of you now, meaning he's one of the church. He's not just a brother as, as part of the, the family of God, but, but he's part of, of this church, the one that he's writing to. And so as far as the law is concerned, Onesimus was a wanted man. And Philemon had the right uh, to his property as his servant. I think we said before we don't know how Onesimus became Philemon's servant. It could have been repayment of a debt. Regardless, he stole and ran away. As far as his past is concerned, he was an unrighteous man. He was unprofitable to God, unprofitable to his master, known as a runaway thief from the, uh, this church. As far as God was concerned, he'd put his finger on Onesimus and saved him. And now Paul tells the Colossians church that, that this man that they knew before is returning as one of their number. 
Now think about that significance in, in your own life. Think about Onesimus walking all the way from, from Rome. <clears throat> and he has two letters. I don't know, maybe he's carrying one in each hand. Letter to the Colossians that describes him this way. And a letter to Philemon asking this man to forgive him and he has to confess and acknowledge what, what he's done. And in this letter, Paul says to the Colossians, he's a believer, he's a full member of the house of God and the local body, and there was no stigma from the Lord as far as God was concerned. On the other hand, there were many responsibilities to make right wherever he came, and that was the letter to Philemon, and and that's really how, how you operate. The minute that I came to Christ, I'm righteous before the Lord. My sins are forgiven. Cast as far as east is from west, just like the thief on the cross. If I died that day, today I would be with the Lord in paradise. But, but that didn't mean that the wreck that I'd made of, of life was just swept away. I, I had to confess things to people and try to make things right with people to the best that I can. But the Lord never saw me any different from that point forward. And I was part of the family of God from that point forward. That's the power of the gospel. And you know what? I wanted to make those things right because God had changed me. That's the letter to Philemon. But there were no restrictions before the Lord. Paul calls him one of their own and and a brother. There's no partial membership for Philemon. No halfway covenants. And the reason is because our position in Christ defines how we relate to one another. On our past or what we do or, or did, I should say. And you're either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. And as far as that relationship, it's, it's one or the other. And I think the lesson here, you know, is just don't make extra rules or set extra hoops just in case. That's what the binding and loosing in Matthew 18 is all about. It's what the Catholic Church has all wrong, as if the church is able to, to declare certain things. When the text says, we declare what heaven has, has already bound and we declare what heaven has already loosed, I mean, it's... It's fixed. God is the one who determines things, and it's written in His Word, and all we do is declare that. And we declare if you repent, if you repent, you'll be forgiven, and if you don't, you won't. But be careful removing a standard that the Bible has made either. They don't seem really sincere, so, or they seem really sincere, so we won't make them do that confession thing but don't add additional ones either. Onesimus' position with God and his church is based on Christ and his present relationship to him, and that's a, that's a wonderful truth. So what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 4.28, He who steals must steal no longer. So this is not a, well, God doesn't care, he loves everybody, he can just redefine whatever sin is. That's not what he says. He who steals must steal no longer. But even beyond that, he must rather labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who is is in need. Have you been a thief? You're not known as a Christian thief. You're just known as a Christian. But as a Christian, you now work with your hands in order to give. Something completely foreign to you whenever you were just a thief. Are you a liar or a fornicator or a drunk? You're not known as a Christian drunk or a Christian fornicator. 
You're not known as anything other than your position in Christ and your present faithfulness. And the other way around is true as well. If you, if you know Christ and you're not walking with Him today, your usefulness is based on your presence. Spurgeon said, don't offer, you don't offer a guest in your home stale bread, so don't offer God yesterday's life and, and labor. What are you doing for Him now and the present, even though He saved you in the past? Onesimus' past didn't negate his future. His position was based on his present, the present, the fact that he was in Christ. And the third statement that he makes about Onesimus is his profit to Christ in the body was determined by his ongoing faithfulness. Look at this verse 9 here. His profit was determined by his ongoing faithfulness. After he describes Onesimus as a faithful and beloved brother who's now one of your number, part of the church, he says they, that's Tychicus and Onesimus together, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Talking about what's going on with Paul. Now think about this statement in context of what's going on. Onesimus is coming back to own up to his crime and sin against Philemon. And the whole church knew about it. And his first order of business is to seek reconciliation, as we outlined two weeks ago. He carried the letter, he's to confess and seek forgiveness, and he's to take whatever consequences came. But Paul also expects him to do more than that. He expects him to address the church and give a missions report about the ministry in, in Rome. Now, he doesn't say get in the pulpit and, and preach the Bible or, or something that, that requires uh, testing. But he clearly gives him a job and a task to do. And he doesn't say, now, if Philemon, if Philemon forgives you, then, then you can give the report. He knows Philemon well enough to know that as a Christian, he would not only forgive, but he would go far beyond what the apostle was asking. And he also knows the power of Christ and Onesimus as well, that he would do the right thing. So much so that he gives him a job after he does it exactly what Jesus does with Peter. You remember Peter was God's spokesman on the day of Pentecost? But long before that, Peter was a spokesman for the devil. In fact, Jesus even says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, one time. Do you remember Peter's bold claim in Matthew 26? Matthew 26, 31, Jesus is coming to the end of, of his ministry and getting ready to go to the cross, and Jesus makes this statement. This is God. Peter's already seen Jesus transfigured before him on the mountain. And he's so frightened over that. He, he, he doesn't know anything to say other than, let's make two tabernacles, three tabernacles and stay right here. Jesus says to the disciples, you will all fall away because of me in this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And Peter said, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter says again, even though I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then all the disciples said the same thing too. Now here's a cocky little rooster crowing long before the one in the courtyard opens its mouth, right? 
I mean, he's arguing with the Lord of glory. I will never deny you. And the disciples said the same thing. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go to the death. We'll never deny you too. If you don't ever wonder about Peter's leadership abilities, one said, because people followed him. And here's an example of that. And the Lord knows that. And the problem is that Peter's not a very good leader. And so the Lord allowed him to fall in his pride to make him a good one. And you know what happened. When the time came to associate with Christ, Peter not only denied he was with Jesus, he cursed him. Matthew 26, verse 74 says, Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows. You will deny me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Peter had godly sorrow. It's like saying, I call on God as my witness to bring His wrath down upon me. If I am lying, I do not know this man. Those are pretty strong words. And God witnessed he heard him with a rooster. That was his fault. Do you remember his restoration in John chapter 21? Turn back to John chapter 21 just for a second. I want to show you that In the restoration of Peter, it's, it's exactly the same as Onesimus. Peter wasn't done disobeying the Lord even after this, even after he wept bitterly, or being a bad leader for that matter. You remember they were instructed to go to Galilee and wait on the Lord? And Peter decides that he's done waiting, so he goes fishing. The exact same thing happens here. The rest of them said, we'll come along too. And they fished all night and they caught nothing. And then at daybreak, Jesus uh, appears. You would at verse 4. It says, but when day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. And yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And so Jesus said to them, children... You do not have any fish, do you? And the answer to him, no. <laughs> Obvious, pretty frustrating. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of a great number of fish. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped from work, and threw himself in the, into the sea. But the other disciples came in with a little boat. They left him to, he left them to drag in the fish. So when they got to the land, he saw charcoal fire already laid and the fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which, is, which you have now caught. And Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, specifically 153 of them. Although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said, come have breakfast. Here's the, the restoration. We're in verse 15, 15. It says, So when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? We don't know for sure whether he's meaning more than these fish or more than these men, probably more than these men because 
Peter's the one who said, although everybody will deny you, I'll never deny you. And Jesus uses a specific word here for love. It's a word for agape, and Peter answers with a different word. Lord, you, you know that I phileo you. Jesus then says, then tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you uh, agape me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I phileo you. And he said to him, then shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Uses the same word that Peter does. Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he finally says, Lord, you know all things. You know. You know. You know that I, I love you this way, and Jesus says, then tend my sheep. Notice what he doesn't say. He asks him three times. Three times he directs him of what to do. He's restoring him. One for each denial, but he doesn't give him a long list of penance to do. He doesn't give him a small job to see how to handle that one. He just says, based on the love that I have for you and the restoration I'm giving, then, then you obey me. Look at what he says next in verses 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said signifying of what kind of death he would, would glorify God. And when he'd spoken this, he said to him, follow me. The first words that Peter ever, ever heard Jesus say, the first words out of Jesus' mouth, he repeats right here. Peter was fishing along the Sea of Galilee when Jesus was calling his disciples, and he says, follow me, and I will do what? I will make you fishers of men. Now he says, follow me, I have a task for you. Do you love me? Then tend my sheep. Follow me, not based on your own will like you used to whenever you were younger, like when you made these bold claims. If you love me, obey me. And he did that because Peter was going to be the preacher of Pentecost and a great apostle. And just like Peter Onesimus once served himself in unrighteousness, and now he serves Christ. And Paul says, I want you to tell them what's going on with me. And Once you come to the Lord, you may have the same skills, the same family, the same job, but now it's all used for a new master. God may not change anything earthly, but he'll definitely change your usefulness to him. And the irony that cannot be missed is the name Onesimus means profitable. <laughs> and Peter's name was Rock. David was a man after God's own heart, but it sure didn't look like it in his life, did it? They didn't live up to their names before. In fact, Onesimus wasn't profitable to, to anyone, his boss, his family, or God. But once Onesimus came to Christ, that changed as well. He served the Apostle Paul in a tremendous way. In fact, as hard as he ran away from, from work and God, he's now running with even greater intensity. And that's what Philemon chapter 1, verse 10 tells us, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who was formerly useless to you, but is now useful both to you and to me. 
And he was so valuable in his labor and in his changed life that Paul didn't want to send him back, but he knew he had to. He was not just sending him back a servant, but a profitable brother who was a member of the Colossian church. And the point is, you may have been unprofitable to God at one point in your life. You may have been unprofitable to your boss. You may have been unprofitable to your family. You may have made bold claims that you would be a rock and you folded like a cheap napkin, as they say. You may have done all of those things or to the church. But in Jesus Christ, you don't have to stay that way. You may have served Satan when sin with great intensity to the point that you even damaged things. But you can repent. And if you do, then the Lord's not finished. In fact, the fall of Peter was the very thing that God used to draw the last bit of self-will out of him so he could be used. And that's all because your profit to God is determined by His grace operating in your future, not solely on the sin that you served in the, pra- in the past. The Apostle Paul knew a lot about that, didn't he? Listen to what he even says about himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is Paul, remember? His former name, Saul. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful putting me into service. Was Paul a faithful man? Saul a faithful man, I should say? Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. In verse 16... Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Example of Paul. Paul knew exactly how Onesimus felt. And you probably know exactly how Onesimus felt. But what about you? You have some time to make up? You have a past? Well, if you do, if you come to Christ, that's what it is. It's past. And if you never come to Him, you won't do that by your own ability. You'll do that by God's Spirit, His work in you, receiving the work of His Son. Three descriptions that show how a forgiven person, if you would do that, how the Lord would view you. Your past doesn't negate your future. Your position is based on who you are in the present in Jesus. And your profit is determined by your ongoing faithfulness. You can come to Christ and then waste the rest of your life. But you don't have to. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful that I get the privilege to serve you. I'm so thankful these truths that Paul speaks about, Onesimus. I'm so thankful that you give instructions, that you gave me instructions, even from the letter to Philemon of how I could repent and make right things that were necessary. 
But, oh, Lord, my hope is not in how another man sees me or even whether I'm able to undo things. Clearly, there are things that I couldn't. I'm thankful that I stand in the worth and work of Jesus Christ, clothed in His righteousness alone. And I will glory in that cross and serve you the rest of my life. I pray the same for everyone else in here. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.